0: once again we welcome you to moving forward with young voices and i'm very happy to welcome for the first time to the program kelsey grant who is a young voices contributor and kelsey good to have you on board tell us just a little bit about yourself
1: great thank you so much for having me so i currently work in the oil and gas consulting world um, in a nutshell, I try to help oil and gas companies be the best that they can be. Um, we help them mitigate rising social risks. We help them on decarbonizing, being ESG aligned, um, and I'm really passionate about the work.
0: I'm looking at an article that you have written for RealClearEnergy.org, and and it's very clear, Kelsey, that there's there's a lot of attention being focused right now on the environment. I love your title though. Conservatives should get on board with carbon pricing now. This is not saying conservatives should just roll over and give uh, the the Democrats or the the people on the left who are pushing environmental issues what they want. Tell me a little bit more about what that would mean for them to get on board.
1: Exactly. So, you know, let me take a step back. So at first glance, my piece, it it calls for Republican climate leadership in the context of the reconciliation bill. And it's kind of true in a way my article somewhat of a thought experiment experiment where I ponder and advocate for a new approach, um, Republican approach to reconciliation, where Republican elected officials are putting um, forth conservative climate solutions and demonstrating uh, they are better than the progressive solutions that have really been catapulted to the top of the political agenda, particularly in the context of reconciliation. But beyond that, my article really tries to convey this uh, notion that simply opposing progressive policies is not a strategy, right? Um, In fact, this is quite common in Republican circles. You'll see a lot of Republicans being able to denounce the Green New Deal, but fewer have an idea of what alternative they can offer. And that's a problem because leadership goes beyond saying what is wrong with your opponent's ideas. And Republicans have a really uh, fantastic opportunity to ascend the mantle of leadership on climate and put forth pragmatic, responsible solutions young conservatives are really eager for.
0: I think people will resonate with, with what you're saying here in the sense that you can only get so far by playing defense. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that necessarily that Republicans need to basically shed all pretense and protection of property rights and become, you know, very hardcore environmentalists. Can you give us some examples of, of what leadership, you know, proactive leadership might look like rather than just simply playing defense?
1: So let's we can play another um, thought leadership game of what leadership could look like in the, reconcil- in the context of reconciliation moving forward. Because there's speculation that Biden will try to um, revive the reconciliation bill in his uh, State of the Union address tonight. So, like moving forward, what could Republicans do? And what does leadership look like? Um, so let's let, let's have a little fun with this. Republicans could put forth their own reconciliation bill. They can pare down a lot of the other social spending, non-climate energy related stuff. They can shape it how they think is tolerable um, and that, you know, they can actually uh, swallow. Um, but what they could also do is for the climate and energy provisions of that bill, in my opinion, they could put carbon pricing at the center of it. And then what they would see would happen is that compared to the Democrats' reconciliation bill, their climate provisions and climate agenda is much stronger and more effective. That would be a fantastic comparison. I think young conservatives in particular would love to see that on display.
0: Help me understand what is meant by carbon pricing.
1: Sure. So I think the first and most important thing to understand about carbon pricing is that it's a very flexible policy It can be designed in various ways. And in my opinion, not all um, ways are created equal. Um, But at the most basic level, a price on carbon involves putting a fee on energy relative to sources carbon emissions. So it relies on the market to just really pull and lead us and encourage us towards low carbon energy. Um, In addition, a carbon price um, creates an economic environment that's really important. For developing these other low-carbon technologies that we need in order to reduce our emissions, like carbon capture, um, and furthermore, it enjoys broad support from the business community, and energy companies, and other conservatives.
0: No, that's actually this is the most reasonable approach I think I've heard in a long time. Now, is is coal the primary offender when it comes to to carbon emissions? Uh,
1: coal is the most car It's typically known as the most uh, carbon-intensive fossil fuel.
0: Okay. And, and what are some examples of some of the, the lesser uh, carbon intensive fuels that, that might, uh, might take up the slack?
1: Sure. Well, it, so what's really interesting is, you know, with some, depending on how high the carbon price is and the rate of increase, um, for some of the low carbon technologies that you'd see really um, rapidly growing in the near term after carbon prices is implemented, is natural gas. It would really pick up the slack for coal, which is great. Um, it it, it, it uh, results in fewer emissions than coal and oil. There are other technologies that it would really support. And, you know, There's going to be uh, solar, there's going to be wind, um, hydro, um, but also things like natural gas, which we really need to um, rely on for our energy system, at least in the near term.
0: So, um, I don't know if this is beyond the scope of of what you have researched for for this particular article, but I know there's a lot of attention right now on energy sectors around the world because of some of the tensions that are going on overseas. Um, Would would this kind of approach free up more low-carbon resources at home or at least uh, greater chances to to pursue, you know, uh, less energy dependence on, on outside sources?
1: So going back to another point that I made that carbon price is very flexible and you can make it and shape it how you want to be. And in my article, I spoke about a certain kind of version of a carbon price where it is applied at the border through what's called a border carbon adjustment, which I will refer to as a BCA for short. The BCA is really interesting, especially in light of there being an active invasion in Ukraine. So it's a very timely discussion that we're having. So let's set aside the Russian-Ukraine conflict that we're facing. A border carbon adjustment, a BCA, has the potential to undermine or undercut Putin's leverage over our energy-dependent EU allies. In addition, there are other benefits to a BCA. It also allows the United States to capitalize on its low carbon advantage abroad. Um, and it also allows the United States to set the rules on climate policy by posturing the country as a leader rather than a follower on energy development and innovation leading into the 21st century.
0: So when you talk about, you know, the, the leadership as far as into the international communities, um, just out of curiosity, who are some of the countries that, that tend to lead out and, and that the U.S. tends to follow?
1: Well, this could be controversial, um, but this is also one of the, the goals of a BCA. You know, China is leading forward on developing solar panels and wind turbines. And what's fantastic about a BCA is that it tells China you can't produce those solar panels and wind turbines in a dirty way. Um, And it puts us, again, back into the the driver's seat of climate policy that allows us to uh, capitalize on our own renewable energy development at home.
0: Okay. No, I, the reason I ask this is I I have family that I have a family member who lives in Germany. And uh, when I went over and visited there a couple of years ago, I was blown away at how seriously they take, you know, that low carbon clean energy approach. Every direction I looked day or night were wind turbines. I mean, they they were even offshore. There were wind turbines going, you know, around the clock. And I thought, man, Um, now I understand though that energy can be kind of expensive there too. So I'm kind of wanting the best of both worlds. I love I love the idea of, you know, clean, environmentally, environmentally friendly energy, but I don't want to have to pay a lot for it. Can we have our cake and eat it, too? Or is that is that a pipe dream?
1: Exactly. It is a false choice that we can have affordable and low carbon energy. Um, and this is what this is exactly where we need conservative Republican voices. Um, I think what Republicans really bring to the table is a pragmatic, balanced, responsible approach to energy development and decarbonization. I think we would all benefit if Republicans really, like, again, ascend, would ascend the mantle of leadership on uh, the climate issue.
0: Can those kinds of changes be implemented without uh, some accompanying cost in terms of um, private property rights or in terms of, uh, um, you know, respecting people who, who want to have access to, to resources that, that are at their hands?
1: This is probably maximally respectful. And in fact, you could have a libertarian argument that it's not respectful of individuals if polluters are able to pollute our air and not have to pay a cost for it. So in fact, a carbon price could be a way of preserving people's property rights. Um, um, in addition, a, a, a carbon price doesn't radically you know, um, reduce access to affordable energy in the way that we've seen a lot more leftist policies have the potential to do. Um, A carbon price can be modest, it can be gradual, and it could be a smooth way to kind of guide our economy and our communities towards a a lower carbon future.
0: And and those who, who, the Republicans who could step up and lead this wouldn't have to necessarily leave their conservative credentials at the door. I mean, they could still do this as conservatives, right?
1: Absolutely. And young conservatives know this. And in fact, young conservatives are quite hungry for a a comprehensive Republican climate platform, because we know that this is a false choice between a a policy between nothing at all and uh, just the Green New Deal. Um, We have conservative options on the table and we're excited for Republicans to rally behind.
0: All right. We are talking with Young Voices contributor Kelsey Grant. Kelsey, where can people find your work?
1: You can follow me at Twitter, at Grant Kelsey. Um, and this article that I wrote that we've been discussing is on RealClearEnergy.com.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Nick Anthony to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor, but he's also the manager of the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Nick, good to have you on board. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. What uh, what makes you tick?
2: thank you for having me on brian well i I look at everything from cryptocurrencies to central bank digital currencies so from the private sector to the public sector with really the lens of currency competition in mind we often think that the currency in our pockets can only come from the government but i think it's important that we step back and look at the history of money the history of private actors being in this space and think about Maybe that's not just reserved for the past. Maybe that can be
0: something we have in the future of money as well. Oh, you are definitely the guy whose brain I would like to pick with the, with the number of the current events that are going on right now. Now, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for techdirt.com. The Fed's central bank digital currency report falls flat. I know that the people in power and particularly the, the Fed has been looking at uh, digital currencies and, and uh, give us some background on this. Why have they been looking at it? What was the purpose behind commissioning this report and what exactly did they learn in this report?
2: Well, we've had stable coins and traditional cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum on the table for quite a while. But then we had this turning point in the summer of 2019 when Facebook decided to step into the water and launch its own initiative. And it's just remarkable that you can see, if you look at the Google trends for the term central bank digital currency, right after the summer of 2019 when the Libra white paper came out, you see this skyrocketing approach towards it. And I think that's what got everyone really thinking that this isn't so much a uh, a garage project that people are doing in the background, but maybe something that has larger implications. And since then, Congress has really been focused on what the U.S. needs to do to have
0: its foot in the in the room on this. Now, you mentioned that uh, for, for a 40 page report that they've been working on for quite some time, there really wasn't that much information. Help uh, help us flesh that out. I
2: I read this with a little bit of shock when I first saw it, because this was a paper that was supposed to come out over the summer, and then it was postponed to the fall. Then it turned into an indefinite postponement of, oh, a few weeks here, a few weeks there. So when it finally came out, I was expecting to see this, this monolith that was just every detail possible was being considered. And yet, the Fed really didn't say a whole lot. It said that it was going to offer an intermediated central bank digital currency and that it had a few benefits on the table. But of the benefits we usually see being listed, there's maybe about eight that people commonly go to. I would say the Fed probably chose the worst ones. I think really, uh, Franklin Knoll said this described it really well when he said it's the least they could have done without doing anything at all. It almost <laughs> seems like the Fed didn't want to have this report out at all. And this was kind of what they could get by and still get that participation
0: grade. Now, you, you mentioned in here that uh, the Fed is is looking very closely at a, a central bank digital currency, or CBDC. But there were a couple of words in there that, uh, that raised a red flag for you. What were those words?
2: Yeah, there was a list of how they wanted it to to be structured, and I thought it was a little telling the way that they they laid this out. They said that they, they want to have privacy protected, and that's one of the big concerns for everyone with this type of endeavor. Then they said they want it to be intermediated, but then they end the list by saying that it also needs to be identity verified. So anyone that wants to use it, needs to have their identity verified first and basically be forced into the the Know Your Customer or KYC and anti-money laundering AML regime that governs the rest of the financial sector. And so, while the possibility was there to create a digital version of the cash in our wallets where our privacy is still protected the way it should be by the Fourth Amendment, the Fed clearly was not interested in taking that route or even considering that route, at least in its paper.
0: Now, is that by design or is that just, you know, an unfortunate, uh, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's just part of the, the package? It's. It seems that with the design they have in
2: mind, it would be a, a key element of it. But the important thing is it doesn't have to be. You can have what's called a a token-based central bank digital currency. And if you go that route, it really does not have to be crucial to it that you're going to have all customers be identified and be tracked Mm. throughout the process. They can have the freedom to have their privacy and still interact digitally, but through the design that they have in mind, that's clearly a key pillar that they wanna have included.
0: You know, I have concerns today that uh, two or three weeks ago I wouldn't have had about you know having that uh, that identity be so closely tied to um, you know the the government or the Fed has to make sure that they know I'm who I am. But it's because I just I just watched you know people in Canada who so much as donated ten or fifteen bucks to a trucker's uh, protest and and suddenly they found themselves targeted. And it seems like this would be setting the stage for not only scrutiny of every single dime you make and every dime you spend, but also potentially uh, putting your money uh, within reach of those who, if they could, would freeze it to punish you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's one of those things that about a month ago, I remember reading a report out of China where their digital currency, they were thinking about how they could monitor late night transactions to try to catch illegal gambling. Now, in China, that's not something that I would be very surprised to hear that from, just considering their track record with authoritarianism. But looking at the sixth freest nation in the world, that is not something I would expect to see. The fact that it went from the Emergencies Act to freezing the accounts of protesters in basically the blink of an eye. It's hard to imagine, but it would actually be m- a much faster process and a much more expansive process if they already had a retail CBDC on on the table there.
0: Nick, I think a lot of us have, you know, looked at, we've heard of China's social credit system and thought, wow, you know, it's China and they're communist and they, you know, they're very authoritarian. But I have to say, I was absolutely shocked at how quickly the prospect of a social credit system Appeared in, and as you mentioned, a very a very free country, relatively speaking, and and I don't know, I I'd be suspicious, anyways, of a lot of stuff coming from from the central bank, but uh, this one in particular doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in me.
2: I, I'm right there with you. It at the end of the day, it seems that it's being used as a a tool that they can really grab onto and take it and just run, and they haven't really thought out how this is going to benefit ordinary citizens on the ground. There's a few options that have been floated, such as financial inclusion and expanding access, but there are so many other things on the table that are improving that on the ground today that it really seems that the benefits are leaning towards the central banks and not us.
0: We're down to about one minute here, but I, I want to ask you, as, as briefly as possible, um, digital currency, cryptocurrency, this kind of thing, is this the way of the future? I think the future is still unfolding, but I think
2: cryptocurrencies, and especially stable coins have an extremely bright future. The future of central bank digital currencies, I'm not so confident in.
0: Okay. And this is having read this 40-page report and you know it's it's good try but let's let's go back and do it again. Any suggested reading that you would recommend for people who want to get their minds more firmly around this subject?
2: I think there's a lot of places that, that folks can go, but uh, if I may plug our own work, I'll say anyone is welcome to come over to the, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives over at the Cato Institute. We have all our work there. We're constantly on the ground trying to make updates to the changing space and really trying to explain it so that anyone can walk up and understand.
0: And where can people find more of your work or follow you on social media? On social media, you can find me
2: at At Econ with Nick, and otherwise, you can find me at cato.org as Nicholas Anthony.
0: Okay. Nick Anthony, thank you so much for being on the program today.
3: Thank you so much, Brian.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're pleased to welcome Regan Farrell to the show. Regan, this is the first time we've had you on the program, so let's take just a moment here for the sake of folks who are meeting you for the first time. Tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are.
4: Sure. I'm from um, Cleveland, Ohio, but I'm typically based out of Washington, D.C. I'm the operations manager and a fundraising advisor for Old Pros, Inc., It's an organization focused on sex work decriminalization and advocacy. We also focus on harm reduction and give a lot of money to sex workers and um, their advocates as well.
0: I'm looking at an article that you wrote for Counterpunch. And, okay, I have to admit, of all the things I was thinking about regarding the Super Bowl, this is not something that was on my radar screen. But the article is California's loitering laws could cause trouble at the Super Bowl. Talk to me about the kind of... uh, problems that those loitering laws ostensibly are supposed to prevent and, and how they may actually miss the mark in the process?
4: Sure. So um, a lot of police precincts will make a big deal out of um, major super uh, sports events. So the Super Bowl, you also see this when the Olympics are in the United States. Um, even WrestleMania, you'll see police precincts turn out um, entire task force, force of people in order to find human trafficking victims. It makes them look really good, and um, often they get a lot of money in order to address this. Um, these loitering laws were um, in effect used in California to arrest people who looked the part. Um, it's largely at the officer's discretion in order to determine whether somebody is loitering with the intent for prostitution. Um, that can be you're wearing very short skirts, you're not the right color in a different part of town, or you even
0: have a, um, a condom in your purse. Yeah. That sounds like that could, uh, could get a little bit subjective. Um, help us understand. It's entirely though. subjective. Okay. That, <laughs> that's the point. Help us understand though. Um, is, is I've, I have heard talk about, well, you know, we have to be really careful. Sex trafficking goes up around these major events. Do, do the numbers match up? I know you, you have some numbers at your disposal of, of actual arrests. What, what do we learn from those numbers?
4: um it's typically local sex workers coming in for business it's not large cartels of people being trafficked in as one might um imagine there were 494 total arrests at the super bowl this year 214 were listed as commercial sex workers um that's typically adult consensual sex workers 201 were listed as sex buyers 53 were listed as pimps um, panders or supervisors of sex and 26 other related charges included on um, felony charges and other misdemeanors. Um, 415 of those 494 total arrests at the Super Bowl received a misdemeanor charge of prostitution, loitering with intent, or escorting without a license. Unfortunately, they did not break down, the LA um, County Sheriff's Department did not break down The number within that 415 that were truly arrested with loitering for intent. But this is what um, the essence of my article talked about, is that these loitering charges are used to slap misdemeanors on consensual adult sex workers, largely based off of the way that they look, racial, sexual and economic stereotypes um, during what amounts to purity test arrests. Um, And a note on the pimping and pandering as well, if two sex workers are working together and one acts as a bodyguard, Um, A screener uh, places an ad or in any way serves as a liaison between the sex worker selling and the client, they can be charged with pimping Um, and under the law, they are selling the other person, even though they're um, really just working together, it does not necessarily mean or prove violence or exploitation
0: now you make very clear in your article that this is not about uh, turning a blind eye to protecting children or even adults from sex trafficking but uh, I think you make a very strong case that there needs to be some objective or objectivity brought to the table here because uh, give us some examples of you know how this could uh, how this could go awry I'm sure it's well intended but it seems like a pretty broad net to be straining people but through Certainly
4: Certainly. So often victims' first experience with law enforcement is actually as they're being arrested and not as they're being rescued. Um, There's a statistic that says, on average, human trafficking victims are arrested seven times before it's realized that they are truly victims. And in many states, the criminal um, convictions follow the victims around. It's hard for them to overturn these criminal records, um, even as they're discovered to be victims.
0: Wow. Wow. Well,
4: <laughs> OK,
0: so it sounds yes. like it sounds like the the state needs to, to kind of have its act together here too. Um, help me understand, too. When we're talking about consenting adults now, I have to confess, I have read Lysander Spooner. Vices are not crimes. And I'm a whole lot more sympathetic to to not treating vices as crimes, whereas, you know, a crime has the intent to cause harm to someone, a vice could simply be a mistake someone makes in their pursuit for happiness. If that involves consenting adults, I don't have heartburn. If it involves someone who's not consenting or it involves a minor, okay, there's the heartburn starting. Why doesn't the law make a, make a more clear distinction?
4: Well, um, Yale law differentiates two categories. Sex work broadly defined as the exchange of sexual services for money, goods, including um, housing, foods, drugs, basic necessities. Um, And then trafficking in the United States on the federal level is defined as somebody um, who is intentionally moved through force, fraud or coercion into a a labor sector. Actually, at the federal level, anybody who is a minor is um, automatically a a trafficking victim. Um, And so the crime of trafficking can be experienced by sex workers, but not all people in the sex trade are trafficked.
0: Okay, And it sounds like laws like this, you know, these these loitering laws may actually make it more difficult for those people who were trying to escape um, trafficking. Um, They're forced to operate more in the shadows, right? Because they're because they're they're not they're trying they're um, trying to stay out of the eyes of the law.
4: Yeah, often loitering laws like this. Um, for example, being charged with a misdemeanor if you have a condom in your pocket um, prompts sex workers to engage in riskier behavior. So they will often go without it, or they will um, uh, keep the the condom on their person but not in their purse. If you catch my meaning, okay. Um, and so this can be really risky behavior for them. Um, they'll often take their client without um, really vetting them, and so they can get to the service much quicker. Um, And all of this would be much easier if sex workers were decriminalized. Sex workers would be incentivized to work with police and find trafficking victims rather than being afraid for their own safety.
0: Now, is this something that should be handled more on a a community to community basis rather than a one size fits all approach that's kind of hammered down from the top?
4: Oh, certainly, I think so. Um, Each sex work community, each city, is entirely different in what they need. Um, A lot of cities will need to do um, some sort of like racial, sexual stereotype training. Um, Between 2016 and 2020, nearly everyone arrested by the NYPD for selling sex was black or brown. Um, Mm. Ostensibly, that's not everyone who is a sex worker in New York City, but in effect, these laws come down on people of color much more strict than they would uh, white sex workers.
0: I'm curious. I know you mentioned in your article that uh, that uh, local sex workers and some legislators have actually uh, um, come forward with a bill to amend California Penal Code Code SB 357. Are the police Are the police, yes. are the police so, resisting this? I mean, do we see where, where's the pushback coming from on this? Who doesn't want the laws to change?
4: Um. So yes, police police unions. Um, a lot of conservative religious faith, um, But whether or not these communities um, understand sex work, I understand their, their worry and how they want to tend to their commons. They want to maintain the peace in their communities. Um, but what they need to understand is that sex work, prostitution is still going to happen. And if you're not decriminalizing the charges, you're only helping the trafficking, the traffickers. You're not helping the victims. Um, implementing SB three five seven would help overturn these criminal charges. They would implement um, policing and harm reduction policies, and they would provide relief to the people that need it the most.
0: Okay, well, I think you uh, look. This is a this is a touchy subject that I thought. I, as, uh, as as we're talking about this, suddenly I'm realizing, oh, now now I'm starting to kind of get nervous, but. I I think you're taking a very balanced approach here. For people who want to learn more about it, what are some of the resources they can turn to to get a better or at least broader perspective of what's at stake here?
4: Sure. If this kind of info piqued your interest, you can listen to further updates at oldprosonline.org slash news. That's O-L-D-P-R-O-S-O-N-L-I-N-E dot org slash news for a biweekly podcast that reports on and contextualizes current events affecting the sex worker rights movement.
0: Okay, and if, if people want to, uh, to follow you on social media, where's the best place to, to do that?
4: You can follow me at, on Twitter at Actual Webutant. Um like debutant but with a W.
0: Okay. We are talking with uh, Regan Farrell, Operations Manager at Old Pro Inc., and also a Young Voices contributor. I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. and we welcome you to our final segment of today's moving forward with young voices happy to welcome david mcgarry to the show david is a young voices contributor and david i'm gonna ask you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do
5: well first of all thank you very much for having me um i am a conservatarian if you will uh commentator coming out of los angeles california um And the piece that I just wrote for the American conservative, um, outlines, or I should say, um, some light on a recently declassified letter from Senators Wyden and Heinrich, two Democrats from Oregon and New Mexico, respectively, which allege that the Central Intelligence Agency has been collecting and accessing a wide set of, uh, Uh, a wide a wide set of uh, data from american citizens without necessarily going through the correct legal processes to do so
3: and more
0: this sounds like something edward snowden may have have mentioned oh i don't know (laughs) about nine years ago or something please continue though
5: if only someone had listened to him right so the case the case that i that i make in my op-ed is that Even conservative hawks who are generally very friendly towards intelligence uh, and data gathering for national security purposes should still be concerned about um, cases such as these because even national security interests must be furthered in a way that's consistent with rule of law, with good governance, with separation of powers, and all the other things that are conservative priorities.
0: Interesting. I look. I was pretty upset a few years back when Edward Snowden brought to the to forefront that hey, there's there is uh, surveillance going on here that really shouldn't be, and I feel like there was uh, there was a couple of years where that was really in the forefront, but it's kind of faded away. Um, given some of the volatility of geopolitically what's going on, as well as some of the stuff going on here at home domestically. Is is it likely this is ever going to get back in front of uh, the the spotlight again to that degree, or is this something that's mainly just kept within you know the the circles of a, a few select committees in in Congress?
5: Well, I, th- I think there's uh, I think there's a building awareness of this, and this is part of why I'm I'm writing this piece targeted towards conservatives. As I said, I'm more on I'm more on the libertarian side of these issues, but I I think that conservatives need to wake up and jump on this bandwagon. And one of the ancillary points that I make in my piece is that through the um, <clears throat> through the uh, investigations of Michael Horowitz over in the uh, Department of Justice, what we've learned is that uh, I- the data gathering by the federal government through the FISA process is fraught with many, 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 many problems, and the the data gatherers don't actually always follow their own guidelines and they don't go through and complete the correct processes. um, And they don't actually always follow the law. And so I believe that now is the time for conservative types to join the libertarians and the the people on the left who are, um, who are concerned about these issues. And I think that's a growing movement and we'll see this play out. In the next few years,
0: so who ultimately has the the kind of clout? I was I wasn't just going to say authority, but the actual means of holding the CIA accountable, and if if necessary, reining them back in is that Congress?
5: So ultimately, it goes back to the American people. But um, the 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 starting point right now, it seems to me, is the Senate Judiciary Committee um, that the senators who have sent the letter have, sit on. Um, And one of the most concerning parts about their allegations is that the CIA's data gathering practices are authorized under an executive order called Executive Order 12333, which was originated in 1981. And the data gathering that is authorized by this order, in fact, is not generally accountable to congressional authorities. Um, and is was actually hidden from Congress until this report until a report um, by the Privacy and Civil Liberties oversight Board to the Senate Judiciary Committee last year, which is the impetus for the letter um, from Senators Wyden and Heid- uh, Heinrich in the first place, which shows that that the accountability was not there. And so the, there is there is both grassroots accountability to give uh, to give lawmakers the political capital and the motivation to follow through on these issues. And then the lawmakers themselves have to take responsibility and push for more transparency and more accountability themselves.
0: David, I I'm grateful for, you know, for people like uh, Ron Wyden and uh, Congressman Heinrich for for stepping up and and or actually is it Senator Heinrich?
5: Senator. Senator. Yeah. OK, I want to mark from to, uh, New Mexico. Uh,
0: I, I appreciate them stepping up. Why aren't more members of of Congress doing so? Is it because they don't have access to this? They're not on the right committees? or is there is there hesitancy on their part to to challenge you know the the intelligence agencies or the uh, national security apparatus?
5: I think I think there are different reasons for different political factions not wanting to take this head on. Like I said, I think that there is a sort of holdover reflexive pro-government stance on the part of the right which is which is very problematic and i'm hoping will change and i think we're already seeing changing especially around the aforementioned fisa issues on the part of the democrats i think the democrats are currently distracted by other issues and in in all fairness to them there's a lot of other issues going on right now for example obviously ukraine um and russia's invasion is top priority um but with the with that with that said, this is this is, is is this is exactly why I wrote the piece I did and I wrote it the day after the 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 letter was declassified um, because I think that lawmakers will respond to the American people when the American people tell them that this is something that they should care about. And as you said, way back when. Edward Snowden made data gathering and intelligence practices an important issue for the American people. And then it kind of went away. So we have new impetus. We have a new new spark that should bring everyone back to this topic and should really ignite, you know, light the fires underneath American citizens, um, underneath political commentators, and really let the elected officials know we need accountability. We need law and order. We need data and privacy and safety for the American people.
0: I know during the especially the first couple of years of the Trump administration, um, there was just endless talk about, oh, well, you know, this is Russiagate and, you know, the investigation into him. And uh, to the best of my knowledge. That uh, that never panned out in the way that the people pushing that narrative uh, told us that it was going to pan out. What's the likelihood of accountability for those who either abused or misused the system to, to try to keep that uh, that narrative afloat?
5: Well, that is something that we have. <clears throat> excuse me. That is something that we will simply have to see how it plays out um, we're as as we know we have uh special we have a we have a special investigation going on right now into exactly how that whole situation was um was handled at the FBI um and with the Hillary Clinton campaign and its associates. Um but a big part of of that issue of, of that whole debacle is really what I what it turned into is the fact that the FBI got a FISA warrant, or I should say renewed a FISA warrant on Carter Page because of a FISA application that was presented to a FISA court that was lacking. It did not um, It did not include all of the information that it is statutorily required to include. And um, a piece that I, uh, I linked to in my op-ed, a piece at National Review by Andrew McCarthy that was published last fall, really goes in and details how uh, Michael Horowitz, the Inspector General, looked into these issues and found that not only was the uh, the Carter Page FISA application lacking, but there have been hundreds of recent FISA applications that have similarly had some kind of legal defects, and yet nonetheless the FBI has been clear to conduct these investigations. So, I think it's a really important point that conservatives should recognize that the intelligence. Uh, the intelligence community isn't necessarily to be trusted to have the good of the American people and the good of Republicans and conservatives at heart. Which, when, and really, at the end of the day, the good of the Republican Party or the conservative movement is is not the the be all and the end all, and should not be the be all the end all of how we how we conduct uh, intelligence gathering. But at the same time. Republicans should realize that this these these kinds of reflexive defenses aren't really benefiting them.
0: OK, unfortunately, we are up against the clock. But We're talking with David McGarry. He is a Young Voices contributor from Los Angeles. And David, where can people follow you on social media?
5: Follow me on Twitter at David B. McGarry. You'll find my work being regularly published and you can find all of that through my profile on the Young Voices website.
0: OK, thank you so much for being our guest.